Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. Noah Rothman is out this week. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, we are going to spend much of the show talking about Abe's blockbuster piece, Yes, This is a Counter-Revolution, which will be available for all to read uh, at uh, commentary.org uh, after you listen to this. Right now, our paywall is down, so uh, you can just go right there and read it without any uh, without any difficulty, and you should do so because it's really a magnificent piece of work. But before we do that, we need to get to uh, the... Uh, top stories of the day. The top story of this morning uh, is that uh, the inflation rate came in for uh, the month of December at 7%, which is the highest number annual annualized year to year since uh, 1982, which of course was the tail end of the great stagflationary spiral uh, that afflicted the United States from the 1970s through the early 1980s before it was broken um, by a combination of, uh, but, but largely by Fed policy um, that uh, drove the country into a severe recession. Um, amazing that it took 10 years to build to the stagflation of, uh, of 2021. Uh, it's, uh, 1982, like there was a 10-year buildup until it really exploded in the late 70s. And we have here basically <laughs> like, like a five-month buildup to an inflation rate that we haven't seen in 40 years. Um, I, uh, once again, I, I kind of wonder at the, uh, at the astounding real world response to Biden administration policy and how it is like, uh, you know, no in thunder, uh, you know, every, everywhere you turn, it is as though, uh, nature itself is rebelling, like in the tragedy of Macbeth. Nature itself is rebelling against uh, against these uh, unworkable, uh, contradictory, and self-destructive policies, and far more rapidly than anybody would have anticipated. Well, and he, uh, it, there, there are a couple things that are happening too, and and we'll see what his response, the response the administration is today, and past. Uh, issuances of, of clear evidence that inflation was a problem and which Ameri- the American people have been saying and experiencing as a problem for much longer than Biden and his administration would acknowledge it. They downplay it. Oh, it's temporary. Remember, first it was transitory. Then it's, well, it's only these certain items and, and these other items are, are not so bad. And they, they try to explain it away. There's no explaining this away. Yesterday, they said they're planning to ask Congress for even more money to spend on COVID after we've already spent $6 trillion. So they are not responding. I think we can officially say they do not have an effective coordinated response to the economic problems this country is facing right now. Even if we set aside the fact that this was not something they created, we are now at the point where we can argue that some of the policy choices they're making are making things worse. And that's actually, I mean, if you're a Republican going into midterm elections, that's all you should be talking about. It is the top concern along with pandemic and crime that the American people have been saying over and over again is what they're worried about in in the near future. Okay. I want to just read off some numbers, price increases over last year, gasoline, 49.6%, used cars, 37.3%, 
Gas utilities, 24.1%. Meats, fish, eggs, 12.5%. New cars, 12%. Food at home, 6.5%. Electricity, 6.3%. Sorry, guys. Sorry about that. I don't know if you heard that um, stupid tone on my computer. Um, Food away from home, 6%. Apparel, 5.8%. Transportation, 4.2%. Shelter, 4.1%. So here's the funny part about this. It's not funny at all, of course, but I I use the word funny uh, in a... I don't even know what what sense I'm, I'm, I'm using it. There are people who will say... Well, look, gas prices are up because of the supply chain problems and used cars are up because people thought they should, whatever. It's used cars. It's used cars. It's being skewed. Gas really often does bounce wildly. And obviously we have difficulties at the ports and the containerized cargo. Uh, But, you know, what we have here is we have... um, large-scale products, right? Big products, used cars uh, and new cars, right? We have the thing that runs cars. We have meat. We have food. We have electricity. We have restaurants. We have clothing. And we have transport. All of which are have risen faster and higher uh, than they have in 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 many decades except for you know some weird spikes uh just uh, at the middle of the pandemic um this is like a systemic failure and uh jason Furman, who was obama's uh the chairman of obama's uh council of economic advisors uh tries to tries to talk it down a little bit by saying inflation is still almost entirely driven by durable goods not services and services make up i don't know 70 percent of the economy Durable goods inflation should come down as supply chains unsnarl, but what will happen to services is the big question, because services are drifting up a bit lately. Now, let's just think this through for a minute, because services are part of the way that the supply chain unsnarls. So uh, as pressure is put on the supply chain unsnarling, uh, you are talking about something where you'll have an upward increase in pressure on on services and uh, durable goods, uh, while they are, you know, don't they make up an aggregate like thirty to thirty-two percent of the economy? I believe something like that. Uh, they're of course very expensive, and services are relatively cheap. So they're the balance is is totally out of whack and out of scale. And the notion that you can say, "No, nah, no, nah, it's okay. It's just services," is kind of bonkers. Um, uh you know the gas costs more so and the car that you need to replace your old car with to draw use the gas costs between you know like like 30% more than it would have cost last year and so just getting around if you don't live in a city with a transportation system uh has just become you know almost frighteningly more expensive um and and you know that's where we get into the you really want to talk about voting problems that are if they don't really exist but okay so you want to say they exist there's uh, also well, another right ahead. Okay, well, I just, you know when things are good and they've been good for a long time uh 
before the pandemic. I mean, uh, the, the quality of life generally in the U.S. has has, has risen, and um, so many are f- free from want and so on. When things are good, uh, politicians are free to tell you what problems exist. Right? They sort of they sort of shape for you what you here's what you need to care about. Uh, there's there's a there's a voting problem. There's a there's a there's a police problem. There's a they, they 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 can sort of try to shape your fears because you don't have that many. This is entirely different. You cannot tell someone that it's not a problem for them that when when their necessary goods are going up and 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 um, creating difficulties for them every day in their lives. They ha- this is absolutely unspinnable in the way everything has been spun in, in recent years in Washington. And, and to the services question, it's a pretty Pollyanna-ish spin that Furman is taking. He's not usually a Pollyanna, but because if you look at what's happening at, at, at a micro level, so places like, for example, there was a story about Portland, Maine, pretty progressive town, passed a, a new minimum wage uh, law, $15 an hour. It added on there a rider saying, if we're in a pandemic emergency, you got to get time and a half. So basically the beginning of this year, the minimum wage in Portland spiked to almost 20 bucks an hour. And the businesses who hire people cannot afford to pay their workers if, if that's the rate. And they're going to have to backpedal and rethink how they're, how they're kind of, you know, not following market Law, law of supply and demand and imposing these sorts of things. Again, from the left, this idea, oh, everybody deserves a certain amount of pay. We have to raise the minimum wage. That's going to lead to problems down the line with businesses that are already struggling, not being able to afford as many workers as they need at, or, and or to lay off some of the ones they have in order to meet that price point. So that's going to continue these problems cascading with supply chain and businesses being able to deliver the goods. I mean, here you said in cities that don't have mass transit, people are paying more. But even in cities that do have mass transit, like mine, they can't get people to show up to work. DC's bus and metro, the bus system just announced that it's going to a Saturday schedule indefinitely during the week, which means certain buses will not run at all to downtown. Uh, The routes that like my kids, for example, take to school every day are now halved. So they're late to school. They wait for 40 minutes for a bus versus 10 or 20. It's it it had these cascading effects also have a have an impact on how people feel the economy is doing, which is it's not rebounding. We're stuck. It's a morass. And everything coming out of the Biden administration doesn't give reason for the hope that someone like Furman is trying to project here. I just want to say, Christine, what you just described reminds me of descriptions of a pre-Thatcher England, right, where sort of everything kind of grinds down to a halt, nothing, things, things don't run on the same schedule anymore. And then they sort of just stop altogether and you just don't, you, you ignore this, you know, that there used to be a bus that went there not anymore, you know. You know, Joe Biden got elected in the middle of a, you know, of a um, once in a century, and maybe you could say once in historical, you know, modern history crisis, right? Worldwide crisis, the pandemic. And um, just think about the fact that there are reasons why when there is a gigantic crisis that should blot out everything else except the crisis, why we've just gotten a real world lesson in how the refusal to do that will have drastically bad consequences. So if you filter everything through the light of how do we get through this pandemic with the least amount of pain, the least amount of suffering and the least amount of long-term damage, 
you would filter every policy choice, every decision, every proposal, every wish list item and say, how is this going to help get us out of this more quickly and get us back to normal? And there was a moment in like early February when they decided they didn't like that approach. They didn't want to take that approach. That approach was not going to help them or it wasn't the fulfillment of their wishes and hopes and dreams at getting their hands on the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And they were going to use the pandemic as a lever to get things that they wanted through and claim that they were doing them in order to alleviate the pandemic. And in the end, they didn't really alleviate. The pandemic went along its own course and has taken its own course, uh, alleviated by the vaccines and various other things, but has not, you know, is not under the control of politicians and the things that are under the control of politicians they have made a terrible hash of i um, mean we know this like we know the 600 dollars a month uh unemployment insurance from you know basically from march to september uh had this terrible effect on the labor market which was part of what began the surge uh in inflation we know that the uh, rent suspension, uh, eviction suspension, the eviction moratorium, whatever we call it, um, was done as a sat- to satisfy uh, the hungers of a certain type of progressive who does not believe, fundamentally doesn't believe that people who own private property have any right to protect themselves on the downside from from receivership by doing something about people who don't pay their bills at a time, by the way, that the, you know, as we know, even though people were getting paid all this money to be unemployed, a, they were pay, being paid all this money to be unemployed, which would mean that they should have money to pay their rent. Number one. And number two, there was also a kind of surge in hiring uh, at the same time. Like the unemployment rate was going down and down and down and down. And yet you basically told millions of people that you don't have to pay your rent. Like, don't pay your rent. It's okay. You're not going to get evicted. No, no one can do that to you, which also has terrible consequences. And, and that is part of a long-term liberal radical idea that the pandemic was used to further, uh, even though the policy was begun under, under Trump. But you could understand why there was an emergency need to suspend evictions because also once no one had any hold on how to prevent transmission of the virus because there were no vaccines or anything, you didn't want people moving around. You didn't want them moving from one building to another if they, you know, whatever, like you wanted everybody, the whole general proposition was people needed to stay put for the most part and not be wandering about changing houses and doing whatever. I mean, whether that was foolish or not is a different issue. It was defensible and comprehensible as an emergency measure. Emergency measures are temporary. You know, we're now into two years, close to two years of an emergency. Phil Murphy in, um, uh, excuse me, uh, Governor Murphy in Connecticut just had his uh, emergency powers extended. What the hell? 
So did my mayor. So did my mayor just this week. Right. No. So the, the crisis and what you're describing is a sort of real world refutation of the adage that you never let a never let a crisis go to waste. Right. Right. How about maybe you address the crisis instead, instead of getting cute with it and, and you know, using it to, to build up your entirely separate, ambitious agenda? Right. Um, so I'm just saying that, you know, we have this interesting thing, which is that the chickens are coming home to roost and the chickens were only just put in. <laughs> in the chicken coop or I I don't know, you know, I mean, it's like Biden is only, hasn't even been president for a year yet. And like everything has gone South. His policies are not only not working, but they are having the opposite effect from what he would want them to have. And he's doubling down on the message that we're disappointing him. That's the, that's actually where if he had not even acknowledged the failures, but pivot and said, okay, well, this didn't work. Let's try this. Let's try that. Just keep trying something until because these are unprecedented times. But instead, every time there's evidence of failure, whether it's foreign policy in Afghanistan, whether it's you know the supply chain crisis or inflation, his response and the response of his spokespeople is always, the American people have let us down. They just, if they would just do this better, it would be fine. And that's that adds again to the sense of torpor that Americans feel like enough already. I mean, we not only have to combat the crises, but now we have to combat the, the, the results of bad policies. To that end, I want to add the their unintended consequences of throwing all this money at a problem and is goes well beyond employment issues and supply chain issues. A lot of people spent that money, that stimulus money on things that will now cause second order crises like crime. Gun sales skyrocketed during the pandemic. People had a lot of cash on hand to pay for things that they maybe wanted but couldn't get their hands on before. Their drugs, same thing, drug overdose deaths. We, we see those numbers. So it's not just that people aren't doing the things we want them to do to keep the economy healthy, but they are also doing actively self-destructive things with money that the government is funneling to them. Okay, so uh, let me let me step back and talk to you guys about our friend Dan Senor's podcast, Call Me Back, the extension of his post-corona podcast uh, into uh, into sort of uh, what the 2020s are going to be like, w- one way or the other. His new podcast, which you if you don't if you uh, if you have post-corona, it's just turned into Call Me Back. If you want to go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, and subscribe, go to Call Me Back with Dan Senor. Um, you know, he's had just fascinating guests, and his latest is among his most fascinating. It's Admiral James Stavridis, uh, you know, who was um, who has a new book out, uh, co-authored by the novelist and short story writer Elliot Ackerman, a novel, a sort of... Um, uh, future dystopian scenario, military scenario, uh, 2034 novel of the next world. And Dan and Admiral Stavridis have conversations about what's going on uh, with China, what kind, of, what kind of military posture we need to be taking to defend the United States uh, in the future, and, uh, and the dangers in cybersecurity, dangers in uh, you know, in the uh, every everywhere you you, you you turn, and this is you know just a a, a fantastic conversation uh, with you know with an American hero. Um, so uh, go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, download "Call Me Back" with Dan Senor. Listen to Stavridis. Go back and go back in 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 the in the archives, and you can hear great stuff with Neil Ferguson and. 
and uh, Matt Continetti and all kinds of people that you uh, will know and love. So that's Call Me Back, uh, the Dan Senor podcast. And uh, it's exciting to reintroduce it to you in 2022. Um, Abe. Uh, okay, uh, before we get to Abe. So now, now, now let's talk about Biden yesterday in Georgia and his speech uh uh his the frankly bizarre decision uh, that is being made by the democrats to go heavy on voting on what they call voting rights and uh and uh, which you know are really not in danger so the whole thing is a ridiculous clown show but um so there he is you know he goes to the uh, what he called in the speech the ebbebezer bastard church i'm not kidding like the speech he you know in his if we can make fun of the way Bush speaks and we can make fun of the way Trump speaks, we should be able to make fun of the way Biden speaks. How dare you, speaks. John? It's a stutter. Say, it's a stutter, John. That How was dare a stutter? You? The Ebebezer ba- Bastard Church? Yeah. Um, so he goes to the Ebebezer ba- Bastard Church. Um, he, uh, he, you know, lays a wreath here. He has a community meeting there. Uh, then they show up at this uh, sort of uh, this joint campus of historically black uh, colleges. And then uh, Kamala Harris um, uh, speaks in her louche fashion, uh, introduces Biden. Biden then refers to her as President Harris, which, by the way, I guess is kind of OK because she is the president of the Senate, but still is really weird. Um, to hear, uh, as it was weird to see her talking while he stood there with his mask on outside, more than six feet away from her and anybody else with his mask on, mask on, kind of not knowing what to do with his hands, not knowing how to stand still while she spoke. Uh, it's kind of like a breach of all protocol. Um, I know Trump did this, like Trump would have people speak and he would stand behind them, uh, but it had an entirely different quality. And then he gets up and basically gives a speech in which he says that if you don't vote for the two bills that he wants, if you and by by you he meant uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, um, you are no better than Bull Connor, the man who turned the fire hose on the peaceful uh, uh, racial protesters in Birmingham. Uh, George Wallace, who you know stood in the school schoolhouse door and declared segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, and Jefferson Davis, who of course was the greatest traitor in American history, the president of the Confederacy. That's um, if you don't vote for these bills, and and if you don't vote to eliminate the filibuster, a long-term Senate tradition that Biden himself used dozens and dozens and dozens of times in his 36-year career. I went back and I dug up a 2005 Washington Times editorial that noted that in between two, in the, in the, in the uh, 2003 and 2004, Democrats filibustered 10 circuit court nominees of George W. Bush's Altogether, there were 20 cloture votes on the 19 circuit court nominees. Mr. Biden was absent for one. He voted against cloture on 18 of the remaining 19 attempts. So that was just for circuit court judges. You know, that's not like that's so now 
that he's president and he's, you know, doing a Hail Mary play to save himself. Now the filibuster is evil. Why? Because Republicans are evil and they hate democracy and they want to destroy our democracy. And it was, it was, it was in some sense, it was a better speech than a lot of his other speeches because he did bring this kind of lunatic passion to it in which he said, I will not flinch. I, you know, it's like, I, I'm a different person now. I know that this is the most important thing on earth. I didn't know last year, but I know now. Um, Christine? Okay, so when, uh, I dug up a number two. In 2020, the Democrats used the filibuster 327 times. So it's not as if this is... Like, this By the way, that's a record. Gonna... That was the record. Record, no, exactly. The record number. Like, yeah. Like in, I don't know, in like 2009? Yeah. Republicans used whenever Republicans actually had the filibuster power um, in in the weird Obama years, like they used it eighty times or something right. like that, and now it's it, now it rose to three hundred and something times. So. so he had he I thought he had an interesting tell in the speech, and it, he has this tell elsewhere. Um, he said before he started comparing half of the country that doesn't want to federalize election law to segregationists, he said this isn't hyperbole. This isn't hyperbole. So whenever he says something isn't hyperbole, he's about to just go on a hyperbole tear in the same way that if someone points out a, a hyperbolic statement that doesn't comport with fact when he's talking in a press conference, he'll say, come on, man. So he has these weird tells. The I actually totally agree with our friend Rich Lowry, who titled his brief uh, description of Biden's speech. This is a garbage speech. And I think that's absolutely right. It was so over the top. It was unnecessarily over the top. It was demonizing people who have a legitimate policy disagreement with the Democrats. And it did so by uh, calling into question not only the integrity of the Senate as an institution, but the integrity of people like Mitt Romney, who actually are among the Republicans trying to find ways to reach across the aisle to do things to better this country. So I was appalled, quite frankly. And I think um, I think this is going to come back to bite him in a way from uh, by voters, voters who maybe even weren't paying attention to these issues are suddenly going to go, wait a minute, you're calling me a segregationist because I think the election laws that we have in, say, Georgia, which are far more uh, liberal than they are in places like, say, Massachusetts, are somehow, you know, Jim Crow 2.0, a phrase which, as I predicted, he used yet again in this speech. So I think it was bad. I just think it was bad. Didn't he, didn't he, at one point he said Jim, Jim Crow on steroids, right? Wasn't yes, that's that his more? other yeah. favorite yeah. phrase. But yeah. no yeah. hyperbole. Is, yeah. No hyperbole. No, not at all. No, it's yeah. it's like when a comic says true story. Um, <laughs> but it's, but I, I have the sense that sort of since Afghanistan, since everything went wrong in Afghanistan, and you would come out day after day and talk about it, um, that it's as if he's presiding over a fantasy nation. The 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 U.S. that he talks about has very little to do with the facts on the ground with the lives that Americans are actually living every day. And, and I think his, his, the poll numbers reflect the fact that Americans are, are, have sort of picked up on this. Um, he, there's, I, I, he has very little credibility when he, when he, when he comes out with these whoppers, you know, it's not, it's not like uh, Obama was, was extraordinarily good at uh, slipping in hyperbole in sort of calm tones and making it sound reasonable, um, and in sort of turning hyperbole, in, in, hyperbole into conventional wisdom, um, Biden does not have that talent. 
Look, the speech was fetish porn. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. Like the 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 voting, the whole agglomeration of ideas uh, among Democrats and on the left about voting um, that are knit together in a kind of complex uh, knot uh, in which um, uh, January sixth connects to. Georgia connects to Stacey Abrams, connects to 19 state legislatures passing 34 laws that limit the franchise to Diebold voting machines changing numbers in 2004 to George W. Bush and the hanging chads in 2000. And it's a kind of this speech was the speech that every one of these fetishists has wanted to hear it's like every everything that gets them off was there sequentially to build this preposterous case that in a country in which 155 million people voted for president just a year and two months ago that it is harder to vote than ever or that these laws are being passed to make it harder to vote than ever when in fact uh the the average voting wait time in georgia to vote in 2020 was three minutes was three minutes so this whole thing about how they won't let you give out water online and all of that now i we've talked about this that uh some of the republican anxiety and paranoia about uh easing uh, voting restrictions is itself demented and is, in, is a part of a different kind of fetish porn. The liberal deep state control of our institutions needs to be shown down because if you let Democrats control things or, you know, con- if you don't get control of the elections, they'll steal them and destroy everything. And that is also preposterous and embarrassing and it's uh, humiliating for them to basically say, if you know, if more people could vote, we would never win an election. Like, I don't know what kind of political stance that is when you're also claiming to speak for the voice in the, the heart of the American people. Like, that's just cringe-inducing. But I mean, this this speech was as emotional as as intended to push raw emotional buttons among among uh, the most uh, extreme people in the Democratic caucus as any Trump American carnage speech was intended to do the same for, um, you know, the most, uh, you know, the most perfervid members of the, of the Trump base. Um, And maybe, maybe more so precisely because Biden had to perform this insane gyration so here's the the quick story is there are these two bills, right? But Chuck, Chuck Schumer, who may now may be proving himself to be the worst Senate majority leader in history, has announced that there will be some kind of vote on voting rights this weekend. But there is no bill. And there are two bills, and they're each about 750 pages long. And neither is actually on the floor of the Senate. And nobody knows which one that one is a... One does one thing, one does the other thing. One's named after John Lewis, and the other is named after Schman Lewis. And so there we have, you know, we have these uh, bills, and and uh, and and there's some preposterous idea 
of uh, laid out in uh, Punchbowl News this morning that what Nancy Pelosi might do is there's a NASA bill and she'll strip out all the stuff about NASA and she'll shove in the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The and Trojan spaceship, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then they'll pa- and then they'll pass that and send it to the Senate where it will be voted down. So I don't, I, it doesn't, you know, it, it, and so there's this whole idea that Chuck Schumer is going to force a vote that is going to lose, right? And it's going to lose be, supposedly because of the filibuster, except it's probably not going to lose because of the filibuster, because it's likely that Joe Manchin or, or Kirsten Cinema will vote against it, will vote against one of these bills on their own without having they won't vote for them and then it's like oh the republicans killed them they might actually vote against one or the other of these bills because the logic is you get these bills all democrats vote for them all republicans vote against it and then you say you see they're trying to destroy voting rights in this country that is why we must lift the filibuster so that we can pass this with the same 50 votes plus the vice president uh, the president of the senate's tiebreaker and then we can get this through the way we can get through budget bills because budget bills are are one of the two uh, uh, one of the two things that um can evade uh or one of the two things that can evade the filibuster rules the other being certain types of judicial nominees now including the supreme court and if you can do that for a budget bill you should be able to do that for our most sacred right the right the most sacred of secretities um, and that's going to fail too, because Manchin and Cinema have said they're not going to support the overturning of the filibuster. And there are three other Democratic senators, Kelly, Shaheen, and Tester, who are also actually on record as saying that they oppose the lifting of the filibuster. So Biden hasn't has a, has a ready answer to that. He only wants to lift the filibuster for bills about voting, right? Except, you know, there are, con- there are massive constitutional issues involving the federal government coming in and swooping in and taking over uh, voting rights uh, practices. There are huge problems with this. The Constitution grants states the power over the place manner in terms of uh, place manner. I don't know what the fourth word is, the third word. It's not terms, but the place manner and something of elections is a state right, not a federal right. The only way that the state, that the federal government got control of these districts because of voting rights was because of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, um, which, you know, were seen, were used as a, as a lever against a different, different element of the Constitution. But you can't just say you're going to pass this bill, pass the bill, and then it's just going to be fine. Because chances are the Supreme Court, which has already overruled some parts of the Voting Rights Act and has already overruled some election, some types of election restrictions that were put in place, because uh, we hear about the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and all of that, will not view, view this favorably. So you could have this entire fight and you could bully Manchin and Cinema into voting for it, and then it'll be, it'll be ruled unconstitutional anyway. Well, that was that was why he signaled in the speech yet again. Now, I'm an institutionalist, but we have to blow up this tool of the institution because of, you know, democracy. I will also add there's another we talked about this yesterday when Yuval was on the show about how much of this is geared towards getting his base energized, including African-American voters. And that he has a he has a real problem with that. That's why a lot of the activists in Georgia, the Stacey Abrams voting people, um, 
didn't show up like they're mad at him and he needs them in the midterm elections to so that the Democrats aren't you know entirely decimated. But I was struck by something that uh, the lieutenant governor elect of Virginia, Winsome Sears, said uh, in an interview last week. She said it really shouldn't be the case that if you pass an African-American in the street, you can say that's a Democratic voter, because if you pass a white person in the street, you can't say that you can't you can't just look at them and say, I know which party you vote for. And for minorities in America, that shouldn't be the case either. We, we are a diverse group of people with diverse political views. And she put herself forward as someone who represents that diversity, that sort of um, ideological diversity. And the Biden administration is running this kind of rhetoric as if they can assume that everyone they're speaking to can be condescended to in perpetuity, because that is what this is. It's condescending to the intelligence of any American voter to be told that they are a segregationist, that they have a problem with the constitutional issues that you just raised, John. Remember who he's saying is a segregationist here. He's saying that Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema, you know, a bisexual former green she was she was a she was a left radical leftist activist in the in the 2000s. She was a member of the Green Party. She's now Bull Connor. I'm sorry. I mean, no party leader. The world I mean, moves it's fast. Like, <laughs> I mean, as I, I said in, in, in my in my column about this in the New York Post today, it's like um, you thought Trump was mean to Republicans. Like he just didn't like them because they didn't like him. He's calling he's using two of the most evil people of the 20th century and one of the most evil people of the 19th century as a weapon against two democrats like and how does he think how is that gonna make them any more cooperative with him well uh, by the way this does remind me of obama in that uh if you recall in the early days of the iran deal uh, Obama comparing the uh, Republicans who were against entering th- into the deal to the mullahs in Tehran, right? Right. They, they were our, our extremists. I mean, that's bad, and it's really bad, and it's it's it it it, it it's bad. But at least there's there's some. I mean, at least it has a it has a slightly comic rhetorical quality to it. It's like you know. Oh, you're just like them. You're just like the ones who don't want there to be a deal. That's not this. This is like, do you want to stand with Abraham Lincoln or do you want to stand with Jefferson Davis? I mean, the, 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 the parallels were, are you Martin Luther King or are you Bull Connor? Yeah, what is John Meacham, his speechwriter, smoking these days? Because, like, I, I mean, I get the wanting to do the contrast, but come on, man, mm-hmm. as Biden would say. <laughs> oh, they loved it. That's the that's that's the that's the money shot of the of the fetish porn was that passage. That's where every viewer at MSNBC went, oh wow, that was amazing. Yeah, but the problem is that Biden thinks he's the dom, but he's actually the sub of his activist left flank. Oh, that's good. That's good. Now we're we're getting into we're getting into a weird area here. So I think we better mute this for the kids, ladies and yeah, gentlemen. Yeah, mute it. Mute it for the kids. Um, 
Okay, we need. Uh, I need to talk to you about Bolin Brand sheets yet again. As I keep saying, Noah's our guy with Bolin Brand sheets. So let me just tell you what he would tell you. He would tell you that they're great. He would tell you that they're soft. He would tell you that they're buttery. He would tell you that they fit the mattress beautifully. He would tell you that he loves the color. Right. So, uh, Bolin Branch's signature sheets, according to Bolin Branch, you know, are, are so soft and light, you'll forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud, and that they're and. They're sustainably made for uncompromising quality from field to factory. The softest organic sheets on the market, and they get better with every wash. Noah says that. Comfort isn't their only standard. They use 100% sustainable raw materials. And as the first Fairtrade certified manufacturer of linen, you can feel as good about your Bowling Brand sheets as they feel against your skin. They're buttery soft, lightweight, organic cotton, classic sateen weave for sheets that get softer over time. Focusing on quality over quantity, 100% organic cotton, ethical production, thoughtful attention to every detail, nothing worse than fitted sheets that don't fit, right? This is another thing Noah told us. The Bowen Branch 17-inch deep fitted sheets and labeled sides help you make your bed beautifully every time they fit, they don't pull off, and the little things make a big difference, and Bowen Branch gives you a fair price. So get 15% off your first set of sheets. When you use promo code commentary checkout, experience the best sheets you've ever felt at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And let me also add, uh, talk to you a little bit about our friends at Wealthfront, but you got to give me a second because I closed the window and because I was stupid and I closed the window where I had the text on Wealthfront. So I will now tap dance while I find it. Yes, I could talk to you about my what I did once at the commentary roast, which I'll talk to you a little bit about is when 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 a, when a video froze, I spent six minutes talking about my bar mitzvah. So I could do that until I find the ad, which should be here. And here it is. Okay, so you don't have to hear about my bar mitzvah, you lucky people. I want to talk to you about Wealthfront. Okay. 2022, new beginnings. The beginning of a new year is a great time to finally start things like diets, workout routines, or thinking about your financial future. And that's where Wealthfront, the app, comes in. You can start investing in no time at Wealthfront.com in its classic portfolio or make your portfolio your own at Wealthfront.com with things you care about like socially responsible funds, technology, crypto trusts, or hundreds of other investments. Wealthfront, designed by financial experts to help you turn your good ideas into great investments without the hassle of doing everything yourself. Don't want to spend hundreds of hours trying to lower your tax bill? They help you do that. Not sure how to rebalance your portfolio or what rebalancing is? They do it for you automatically. It's trusted with $28 billion in assets, helping nearly half a million people build their wealth. And the best part is their product is so simple yet powerful. It has 4.9 stars in the Apple App Store out of five. So to start building your wealth and get your first $5,000 managed for free for life, go to wealthfront.com slash commentary. That's W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash commentary. To start building your wealth, go to wealthfront.com slash commentary to get started today. Abe Greenwald. Yes, this is a counter-revolution, a sequel to your blockbuster piece of uh, 2020. Um, year and a half ago, uh, we published this piece. Um, and this is the sequel. And you are trying to survey what's happened in America since, uh, since the uh, gigantic surge in frankly revolutionary activity uh, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, murder. That is correct. So, you know, basically my idea was to 
look at what has been going on in that year and a half and see sort of how the revolution is faring. Um, I think generally there is a sense in this country, and I've, I've, it's, certainly people have said it to me, the people who, who read my piece uh, back in 2020 describing uh, what we at Commentary called the Great Unraveling and all the revolutionary activity going on in the wake of George Floyd's killing. People have said to me things like, Oh, so what happened to the to, to the revolution? You know, things seem 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 pretty calm now, and I understand why they would say that. Uh, on the surface, uh, if you compare today to the summer of 2020, there are no riots, there are no armed mobs, there are no uh, occupied zones in the Pacific Northwest. Um, uh, calls for police defunding are are certainly uh, much more muted uh, than than they were uh, back then. We don't see the headlines every day about uh, cancellations and and staff uh, in, in high positions stepping down because of uh, identity identity politics. So much. I mean, you know, if you're on Twitter, you still see these stories pop up, but it's it doesn't dominate the news the way it did. Uh, we don't we don't hear much about tear, tearing down statues now. So there is a relative sense of calm to 2020. This is true. But if you look closer, and this is, I get into this in the piece, why, what is responsible for the relative calm? Um, what is responsible is the fact that the revolutionaries got everything they wanted uh, in a shocking amount of time. Police departments were defunded. Uh, they were they were promised to be defunded by various mayors within weeks of of, of George Floyd's murder. New York City defunded the NYPD by by almost a billion dollars. Other major cities, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, uh, San Francisco, of course, right. So the police were comprehensively defunded across the country. Statues have been torn down more than a hundred all across all across the country. Uh, statues of, of slaveholders, as well as statues of abolitionists, because they're part of history. You know, that's and, and American history is itself bad um, just because. Um, and we don't hear so much about cancellations anymore because it's become an a, a everyday occurrence. They, it's achieved a, a, a rate, a pace where you expect people to be canceled if 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 an old tweet was dug up or or if uh, someone uh, said something mistakenly in a classroom, for example. But it's happening all the time. If, if, you, if you look behind the scenes, as I say in the piece, just Google professor fired, um, and you will see just how busy the, the cancelers have been. It's, 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 it's ongoing. So in various ways, I get into how, how uh, the revolution has um, succeeded. And even beyond these major issues, um, there is a pervasive sense in our culture, in our system of manners, in the way we talk to one another, in the way we talk about things, in what in what we see on our screens, what's offered to us on on streaming channels. Um, there is a whole new understanding of what you can say, who can say it, what you can never say. Um, it has become absolutely part of our sort of everyday metier in in dealing with other people and things. Um, the, there's a revolutionary sensibility that has sort of worked its way into our quotidian lives. Now, I do offer, as the title indicates, 
some heartening news and some some reason for hope. And this is that on the most major issues of the revolution, there has been successful pushback by ordinary Americans. And this has to do with uh, the teaching of what's called critical race theory in schools, um, whereby, in short, uh, teachers are tell kids that white peoples are first and fo- white people are first and foremost oppressors, and black people are first and foremost victims, including you kids sitting in front of me. Um, the pushback on that from parents of all races um, has been um, heartening and quite successful, uh, most obviously in uh, Virginia, where Terry McAuliffe, who had sort of championed the idea of uh, schools, you know, being able to decide uh, whatever uh, ideological poison they want to put in kids' minds uh, is is okay, and parents have no say in the matter, Uh, of course, he was defeated. Um, and there are organizations all over the country of parents who have been pushing back on this stuff successfully. Um, not totally, but successfully. And th- th- that, that is an ongoing struggle, but it is happening. There is a fight now that, that is underway. Um, and the other area, of course, is on defund police. Um, because police were so comprehensively defunded everywhere, violent crime has absolutely skyrocketed through, through 2020 and 2021, both years, um, in city after city after city. And of course, by the time we get to uh, the, the, the start of 2022, cities have put money back into their police forces because at people, once again, of all races, have responded and said, this is garbage. I don't feel safe. Defunding was a huge mistake. And pro-defund politicians, just as pro-CRT leaders, have paid a price in the polls. Uh, um, uh, certainly in, in New York, we see it, uh, uh, Eric Adams, who was made, uh, safety, a sort of keystone of his, of his campaign, uh, one in, in, in Seattle, where there was a proposition to replace the police department entirely with, uh, some sort of, uh, I don't even remember what the word is. Some, 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 some kind of, um, I, John, you're on mute. Social worker SWAT team of some sort. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that was shot down um, uh, 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 by the people of Seattle and so on. So uh, basically my, my, my thesis to, to sum it up, but I get into all of it in much greater detail, is that um, while the revolution has, has, is pervasive in our lives and it is kind of in the air we breathe, um, you know, on the big issues, there is, there has been this very encouraging pushback and I think we can hope to see more of it. And then hopefully, um, we can begin to see people, uh, stand up to the ways it exists in the, in our more ordinary, um, aspects of, of our daily existence. Um, not, not just, not just waiting until it comes after your kids or until it, it, uh, uh threatens your safety as you go about your day. So I'm glad one of the hallmarks of this piece is we, we got all excited about doing it uh, on the grounds that there was all this evidence that, you know, there was massive pushback, but Abe true to the character of the magazine, the podcast and the Jewish people of course began with the bad news. That's, that's what's uh, so, so, so interesting about it is that 
we 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 wanted to do something positive about how look the things that we predicted were going to come to pass and there was the this revolt was real uh, for all the parents revolt that christine wrote about months and months ago you know well before the terry mcauliffe blunder and the fact that crt became the focus of the of the virginia's uh governor's race but we just couldn't get there because the truth is that you know it's very layered, and the most important one of the most important points is that while there is political pushback, there is no, there is very little cultural pushback as yet, and that uh, corporations and the culture and and uh, the private sector have simply sort of enfolded themselves into this uh, into this uh, set of ideas, um, uh, and I think one thing that everybody always thought wrongly was. Well, you know, they don't care about, they only care about money and they'll, you know, they're sort of buying it off and it'll all be okay. It'll all be, and uh, it's not necessarily going to be so okay, but good. So let them, I mean, the problem is let them suffer the consequences of their, of their decision to kowtow in this way to, uh, frankly, evil ideas and all that. But the problem then is, of course, that the people inside those places that might want to might want to stand up against it and and provide a countervailing force um, have to come up against the possibility that they will be retaliated against by these kind of monstrous cultural revolutionary revolutionary methods that apparently are are even more successful you know inside private businesses than they are um, at the governmental level, because nobody actually, if you work at a company, you don't have a vote, obviously. And if you live in Virginia, you can cross the aisle and cast a democratic vote in 2020 and cast a vote for Glenn Youngkin in 2021. This by the way, is one of the most powerful parts of, of Abe's excellent piece is, is capturing the qualitative damage that the revolution has done culturally, because it's easy, you know, when, when, People who support this stuff say, oh, you're just making this up. This is a Fox News kind of, you know, uh, terror campaign and it's not really happening. And you can tout up the number of CRT trainings. You can you can dig deep and, and you can actually find hard evidence. But what even that hard evidence doesn't capture, which is shocking enough, is the qualitative experience of living under a cultural regime that do- that actually makes you actively self-censor, constantly question what you're going to say or do. And I think Abe's piece really is getting at that in a way to say, yes, we do have this pushback, a lot of it political, but the cultural pushback will take a lot longer and has to involve a lot more courage by average people who really don't even want to get involved in this fight. They're kind of in it, whether they like it or not. And I think your piece captures that really brilliantly. Yeah, so I mean, that you know, is, oh yeah, sorry. I was just saying, yeah, part, you know, part of the problem is that it's, it's easy enough to go along with uh, on that level, or it's certainly compared to the alternative, right? I mean, so if you just have to, you know, attend, a, a, you know, an occasional seminar on, you know, inclusivity, uh, you know, put a put up uh, some sort of pro pro revolutionary uh, uh, tweet on your on your on your Twitter account or social media, and you know, just sort of say the right things here and there. It's fine. You keep your job. You keep your you keep your status. You keep your friends. You know, but 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 to veer slightly from any of that actually puts your livelihood at risk, and that's that is that is the enduring challenge. So that is yes, this is a counter revolution by A. Greenwald. Now available, the lead article in our February issue, which we are closing today, and there are untold riches. I'll talk about. I'll talk to you about tomorrow. Uh, but uh, it's there for free. Go read it. Go, you know, send it to your friends. 
uh, tweet about it, put it on Facebook, get yourself blocked by Facebook and get yourself uh, limited by Twitter because of the misinformation that you are peddling against their priors or not, or, you know, whatever. It's, uh, we'll see. Um, it's not that uh, incendiary. It's too long for them to read, actually, I think is one of the other things about it. But anyway, we will be back tomorrow with more. So for Abe and Christine, the absent Noah Rothman, I am John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.